Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, the podcast where Ben and I go along with our chronological reading plan and discuss the upcoming week's readings and any interesting bits that we find therein. So we have readings from two uh, kind of major bookshelves of the Bible this week. So we're continuing in Kings and Chronicles, but we are also beginning uh, to get readings from the prophets. And uh, so we're going to kind of talk about those in two separate uh, chunks on today's episode. So Kings and Chronicles covers our passages this next week. We'll cover a couple of the stories uh, of the kings, uh, focusing mostly on the series of Judean kings. And so the first set of stories centers around King Joash, uh, whose entire family was wiped out by the wicked queen Athalia, Athalia, I prefer Athalia, uh, who is like the epitome of the evil Disney queen kind of a character. I mean, we don't get a whole lot about her in the Bible, but the I think the impression that is drawn is is of a woman who uh, definitely was in charge and definitely did not mind killing folks. <clears throat> if there had been a princess hidden away in a cottage somewhere in Judea, <laughs> she would have sent her minions to kill her. Uh, but... Uh, they kill Athalia, Joash as a child becomes king, and in the the first section of his reign, he's under the mentorship of the high priest and, and is faithful and things seems to go well. But once that high priest dies, Joash on his own uh, goes astray and winds up being assassinated. Uh, Uzziah, the next king, generally is a good king, uh, but is so successful that he thinks that he has the the mandate to kind of take on priestly roles in the temple for which he's rebuked and struck with leprosy, and then he has to live in a special uh, leprosy king box for the rest of his reign. Uh, And so I think in these stories, you know, and we're kind of like in the middle between kind of the end of the the uh, monarchy stories, you know, as we get closer to the exile, you know, in these chapters, we can see just the tensions between the monarchy and the priesthood. You know, we see that especially with Uzziah. You know, it's interesting in these stories, you know, they're told the law, we presume, was kind of written from a priestly perspective. You know, Moses was a was a Levite, you know, Aaron's a Levite. And so it's kind of told from the priest's point of view, so to speak. Whereas the wisdom literature, Proverbs and Song of Solomon and everything else is told more from the monarchy perspective, right? They're produced by the kings or the king's people. Whereas the history that we're reading now, you know, is included among the prophets. And so it's like this is this is a third perspective kind of talking about the kings and the priests. And so it's just interesting, you know, and, and obviously fo- focusing on the monarchy and the kings are, are given the majority of the blame for why the, the people eventually went into exile. But it is interesting, like, reading these stories and just wondering, you know, like, where are the priests in some of these situations? <laughs> or, like, why, how did this happen? What? And we see that just the amount of war and political violence is increasing. Uh, and the northern kingdom is very close at this point to being uh, destroyed and, and taken into exile by Assyria. And I think those will be those will be part of our readings in the next, in the week after this next week. Athaliah is, is just such an interesting story. Um, so her her son dies, and her immediate like response to that is to kill everyone else who could possibly have a claim to the throne from the family, and but not not her daughters, right? So her son who who died, Ahaziah's sister, 
lives, we find out in Chronicles, and is the one who protects Joash. But she just kind of wipes out the family. And so it just struck me in this read-through just how very close we were to losing the the good kings of Judah, right? In Chronicles, we get these recordings of, of good kings of Judah, and we see that in Kings as well, but it's a focus in, in Chronicles. And if it was not for this woman who was Ahaziah's sister and Jehoiada, her husband, um, the, the good kings, I think, are done. It's because he was there that, that that happened. And, of course, Yahweh could have acted. It just, it really does, when you're reading it, have the feeling, like your breath catches a little bit with how terribly close the influence of Ahab and the just the evil from, from the northern part of the kingdom um, was to encroaching and, and changing the, the way that this worked forever. Because Athaliah was Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think the story, the set of stories right before this are Jehu's coup, you know, taking over the uh-huh. Northern Kingdom, which is like a shock and awe, you know, campaign that's very bloody. And so in some ways, like I can understand, you know, if you're in Athalia's position, her whole family just got destroyed by radical Yahwehistic terrorists. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and so it's like, okay, so now now the southern kingdom is destabilized because the king just died. And so I think, yeah, I just I mean, I'm not saying it's not evil, but from just the <laughs> the, the the kind of the political calculation, it's like I can understand why she like why that was immediately what she reached for in terms of wanting to wipe out any chance of her position being threatened as a I mean, the, you know, as a member of Ahab's family of like these Yahweh, my grandchildren, these Yahweh radicals, Yahweh. right. Are yeah. going to come get me now. But if I, you know, secure power. strike first, then that's not going to happen at her own grandchildren though, or her own. Yeah. yeah it's and children and grandchildren. That's wild. Uh, Elisha's illness and end comes in our stories this time. So, but the last story we get from him is this just strange idea with bows and arrows where he's talking to the king and he says, Jehoash, um, I mean, Jehoash is upset because Elisha is dying and, and Elisha, when he shows up, Yahweh comes with him, right? He's a he's a, a positive omen, but also just sort of a representation, a, a place where you can go to get help from Yahweh. And as he dies, it doesn't really say that he has a successor like Elijah did. In fact, we see that the, the role of prophet is about to change. Elijah and Elisha went mostly to the, the kings and mostly spoke to the, the leaders of the land, whereas prophets from here on, while they interact with kings, are making messages for the people as a whole. But as he prepares to die, he has this weird story where he tells him to get a bow and arrows and has him shoot an arrow, and you know that's the vi- Lord's victory arrow. But then he says, strike the ground. And the king does it three times and then gets in trouble for not doing it five or six. What in the world is happening there? That just seems So we're in chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does kind of seem arbitrary. I wonder if it's, if in some way it's a comment on the king's, like, weak will or indecisiveness or you know whatever else that like he was he's, he's just not the kind of person that's gonna be that victorious because he didn't take the arrow and and you know <laughs> thrash the ground i mean i don't know i i don't 
it it's a it's a weird uh, or it's just an odd yeah i mean arbitrary is a good word for it of like well but should he should he have known right. to do that like why so like i wonder oh, i think that well i just think that it it reads to me of, of just kind of the prophetic not judgment in terms of like he's being punished and now he'll, but just more of a a prophetic unveiling of like okay so this king is is not strong enough to you know whatever however elisha puts it uh, you have struck down Syria until you've made an end of it, but now you will strike down Syria only three times, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, so he just, he can't, in whatever way, either telling him, you know, that you won't be able to summon the military strength or the, sure. the wealth, you know, to do this, or just because you are weak, weak or indecisive yeah. that you're not going to be able to accomplish this. You use the word unveiling, and I feel like that's that's right. It's I mean, I, I do not think that Yahweh is making a decision in this moment right. to Based not support him. Based on how often he hit that, the ground with the arrows. That is how it reads, but that's part of what the prophets do, right, is they unveil things and they right. use these object lessons to do it. And then we get this cool story about Elisha's bones, and that actually seems kind of odd given, I mean, everything in Scripture having to do with dead bodies. Yeah, you know, and I think it's in some ways it's the exception that proves the concept right that elisha is so so elijah didn't die right was translated bodily into heaven but elisha did die but his he was so holy that his corpse like conveys resurrection power I mean, it says he touched his bones. <laughs> I know, right? So <laughs> but it's, it is it's just a very a weird, weird like, story. So Elisha, why were Elisha's bones out? <laughs> like, I just, I don't understand. You know, if they, um, and so whether it was his bones, that's a figurative way of, of saying that, like, he touched the ground, you know, or the cave, the part of the cave close to where Elisha was. And so it's kind of like his, his holiness had irradiated, you know, the, <laughs> the ground around him. Uh-huh. I mean, and we talked about this before, I think last week with like Elisha and Elijah raising the the boys back to life that they, they laid down on top of them. And of course, Jesus, Jesus could do miracles at a distance, but he also often, you know, his power was conveyed through touch. And we, I mean, we see the bleeding woman, you know, uh, she touches him, you know, and and Mm -hmm. healing power leaves him. Uh, through the through the physical contact and so yeah i don't know that there's just something about that 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 elisha that elisha in death still conveys the power of yahweh you know that overpowers the uncleanness of the fact that he's dead it's just and it's odd because i mean we haven't heard from elisha in a little while Mm -hmm. they just want to let us know that he died and they give us this little story with no context or comment on it at all afterwards and I mean, it, it just sparks the imagination. It's all. <laughs> well, it does, and I wonder too. And I, I, you know, I'd want to look more into this, but just on a kind of a what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like a structural level of these stories. You know, we we were talking a few minutes ago about how Kings is is a prophetic book, so it's written from the prophet's mm-hmm. perspective, not the king's perspective or the priest's perspective. You know, and that the same this these same section of stories you know is showing us the corruption of the priesthood or at least uh maybe not directly but like begging the question why are the priests not you know intervening to to make things right and certainly the the slow decay of the monarchy and so i wonder then if if elisha is a prophet that that part of the point being made here is like the the prophetic office you know is 
not better. Like, I don't think it's a competition between the three of them, but there is some sense in which, like, Yahweh's prophets, like, there is no, well, I guess Jonah, but there is no, there's not really, like, corrupt prophets who are real prophets. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there are priests who are corrupt, but, like, the prophets that are, I mean, Elisha and Elisha didn't, they were not corrupt. They didn't mistreat people. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you know. There's the one story of the former prophet who lies to his the other prophet and gets him killed well sure yeah, yeah. you're right I but mean, on the whole this is right um, you know that and so it's i wonder if that's the role of the prophet is kind of changing it seems as we get especially once the northern kingdom is destroyed right we start to see the emergence of these figures who the literary prophets who wrote mm-hmm. you know wrote these poems or wrote these books and and that's why we're going to read you know talk through two of them today is that this is when they start popping up you know in the record so i mean something is happening in terms of kind of where the where the holy spirit juice is in terms of the institutions you know in in israel and judah well in speaking of the like the priests and not not doing what we would hope the priests would do i wanted to ask you a little bit about what we see in these stories are a lot of examples of syncretism of the God or some of the kings will worship Yahweh, but they also worship right. these other deities. And we see in that just this this propensity for worship of other gods to seep into Yahweh worship. Um, and I would love it if you would just I know there's a big question, but if you'd give any thoughts on why that happens so easily and often. And does it look the same today as it did then? I think that there's there's a couple levels to that. We are sinful, and I that means, I think, a few things. <laughs> One of them is that we tell lies, but that also that we can be duped by lies. You know, so, so our minds being darkened by sin doesn't mean that our thoughts are all evil, but that certainly oh, most of our thoughts are limited. Like, ignorance is... There's a way in which ignorance is a is a side effect or kind of a tag-along henchman of sin. <laughs> I mean, it's not yeah. it's not sinful when somebody doesn't know something, <laughs> you know, but I think... In, and I think these stories t- are telling us this, that, like, there is, a, there is a sense in which these kings should have known better. Like, I mean, that's kind of a recurring... They should have known... Why did they not know better? And there's many answers to that, but I think that they all, you know, point up to this this sinfulness that exists in them and, and that exists in the people and, and exists in us all, you know. And so I think, so why is it so easy? Well, because we tell lies and we believe lies, you know. And so I think that even someone who's a faithful, you know, let's keep it in their context, somebody who's a faithful uh, Judean, you know, there there will be wrong ideas about God, not only that trickle in from their neighbors or their families, but that even just well up inside of them. And we see this happen in our own lives. You know, a tragedy strikes and somebody goes, oh, well, I guess God doesn't like me. That's not true, but it lodges itself deeply in somebody's heart and imagination. So even though they're, and even though they're a faithful Judean follower, they now have wrong thoughts about Yahweh. Right. And so we could say, okay, well, are they really worshiping the real Yahweh or are they worshiping an imaginary puppet that they made in their minds? And I think we kind of drive ourselves nuts with that question because ultimately, I mean, I think that the part of growing in faith is kind of a lifelong cycle of, of realizing, okay, I was wrong about this, you know, aspect of God or whatever. And I'm going to put that away now and accept the truth or not even I was wrong, but just, I didn't get it. Like I just didn't understand what, this 
these words meant or what we were doing, but now I do, you know, and so I think that, yeah, and so I, I think that that's, that's one level of it. I think that there's a sense in which one of the ways that we see them struggling is that you can't see Yahweh. No one can look on him and live. I mean, apart from all the people who wind up doing that, <laughs> but then, you know, that you you're not supposed to be able to do that. You know, when they saw, you know, Moses says this in Deuteronomy: when we saw the fire on Sinai, we didn't see him. We heard his voice, you know, when we saw the fire, but we didn't see him. And that's part of why they're not to make images of him, is because there is no image that the, the humans themselves are the images of Yahweh, and so there's no need for another idol. And we've we've referenced we've referenced this a few times, which is how ancient the ancient Near Eastern people, like what they thought they were doing when they went to their temples and they made sacrifices and everything else. And there's there's some similarities, you know, to what the Bible portrays, but there's a lot of differences. And I think the big difference is that you know, for those who were worshiping Baal or Astarte or whatever else, that what the sa- that the sacrifices were really more like magic, meaning that you did something in order to make the gods do something. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about that last week with the ritualized sexuality and the Baal religion, you know, that, that you would go and have sex with the temple prostitutes or, or whatever else in order to get Baal, you know, to then send rain to, to fertilize the crops. Whereas with the temple and Yahweh, that was not what was happening. The sacrifices didn't make him do anything. <laughs> like he was already doing the things, holding up his end of the covenant. And the sacrifices were the way of acknowledging that. Um, or or even, I guess we could even say like agreeing, you know, with, with what he'd already done. But, you know, when you're facing famine or facing a lack of rain or facing looming military threats or disease or whatever... You know, I think that people naturally want to reach for greater control, mm-hmm. and and that impulse isn't wrong. You know, I mean, I, um, but I think that when we talk about this in a religious sense, you know, that the worship of Yahweh, there are no levers to pull to get him to do what you want, but there are for these other gods. Yeah, you know, and so maybe if we can pull some of the levers for these other gods, you know, they'll help us in a way that, that Yahweh either isn't or isn't doing fast enough or whatever else. So I think that's part of it. And I would also say the last part of the, the last part of it would be that there's also a political sense to this that we, that we shouldn't overlook. Um, and, you know, and we see this, especially with the Ahab story that he, he uh, visits Damascus, the capital of, of Syria or, or Aram and or Aram or however you say it, sees their altar to their God and is like, hey, that looks great. Let's have one of those in Judea. Not because he was necessarily, he was not impressed by the religion. I think he was impressed by Aram's military power, you right. know, and, and, and wanted to be friendly with them. So let's have a, one of their altars built in Jerusalem so that they feel like we're friends. And so that's that's really more of a political what we we would think of as like a a politically motivated you know religious decision or when you think about uh jeroboam you know when the northern kingdom originally split you know he set up golden calf idols in the north and the south of of israel not again because he wanted to lead the people astray from yahweh but because he wanted to not have them go to jerusalem for the festivals because I think he was right about this because he knew that, you know, that he, that he would not be able to maintain an independent kingdom if if the people were all going down to the southern kingdom all the time to worship yeah. Yahweh. So it's like, well, so we'll just worship Yahweh here, you know. And so, again, that's not like, oh, let's 
you know, we, we want to lead the people astray from Yahweh, but rather we want to make a, a politically expedient decision. So I think that's the answer. Well, not the answer, but those yeah. would be the answers to why is why is it so easy? And why does it happen? And is it the same for us? Okay. So, I mean, I think the short answer is yes in all, you know, in all of those aspects that we have false thinking that creeps in, you know, from our own experiences or from other people. We also want control, you know. I think that the gods that we can reach for might look different than theirs did, but they still tend to involve money, power, and sex. So, you know, they're not so different. We just call them different names, and many of them are branded now. But, I mean, they're they're still (laughs) the gods, you know, the same old cast of demons. Or just what we center in our homes. Like, for most of us, our living rooms are built around the television. You know, well, why is that? Why is that important to us? You know, or... Or how are our schedules built? You know, we've talked a lot about the ancient Israelite calendar, and we have calendars too, you know, daily calendars, weekly calendars, annual calendars, and what what is emphasized, what is allowed room for, what is unacceptable to skip, and what is acceptable to skip. Um, And so I think kind of poking around with some of those questions, I think, helps us kind of see our own cultural blind spots and, and where we may be verging into you know, what the, what the folks who wrote Kings, you know, I think would consider also, you know, to be idolatry or the worship of false gods. We, I think would feel like it was an act of disloyalty to take, to have a a altar to uh, Hadad or to have an altar to Asherah or, or something of that nature. But since we don't name them and we pretend maybe they don't exist, that makes it, I think, even more insidious as, as these practices creep into our heart and take up residence because we come to believe that they are completely compatible with Yahweh worship. And especially as we read the prophets, some of those things are probably going to be challenged. But we also, I mean, and I think we've already seen that it's also, it's complicated, right? So Naaman asked for permission to help his boss worship Ramon and Elisha sent him in peace, you know? And, Mm -hmm. And so it is... I think that the, because we can also have kind of the overcorrective impulse, you know, to to go Amish and not to, uh, the Amish <laughs> people are great. But, like, I think that there's, yeah, there's just a ways in which they are also mistaken. <laughs> you know, let me put it like that, right? Like, none of us are perfect. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be striving for it. You know, and like I said, right, it's kind of this lifelong process of realizing, oh, I was wrong about this or I didn't understand that. Or, you know, this is a better way, you know, of, of approaching this and to, you know, to repent, really, and say, well, that was a mistake, but that's all right. I now know, and so now I'm going to do things differently. You know, I think that there's, especially for us and everything you just said, in terms of that it's, the lines are, are perhaps less clear, you know, or it's harder for us to see our own, you know, situation objectively i mean it's not good to find out that you've accidentally been worshiping a false god (laughs) it's not a pleasant feeling but also i think god does not throw us out you know the moment that that comes to light right because part of he's he's revealing that to you it's like okay this was not good so stop now and even you know i think that there are ways in which two people can approach the same thing and for one of them it is a it is a, it is a idolatrous thing but for the other person it's not then like i said we're also beginning to get into some of the prophets in this next week's reading so we'll be reading all of jonah and amos and then some of the beginning passages of isaiah and micah so jonah is 
probably one of the more, at least parts of it, are one of the most well-known stories from the Bible and very popular for children's books and, and movies and things like that. But it is definitely a short story for adults, <laughs> or for everybody, but you know, not just kids, that Jonah is a story that really confronts God's people about what obedience means and even just what is the real nature of the creator's mission in the world. Um, so I think Jonah, for ancient Israelites and for faithful readers today, confronts us in our thoughts about who does God love and, and what does it look like for us to to uh, proclaim God's kingdom in the world. Um, you know, Jonah is, it is, in many ways, it's what you could call a lampoon, you know, that, that so much of it is, it's a topsy-turvy story, you know, that the prophet is the most disobedient figure and the pagans and the natural world, you know, are immediately obedient. Um, the fish catches the man, you know, in this story, which is the opposite of what normally right. happens. So there's just a lot, you know, of these kind of inversions um, that uh, I think are meant to remind the Israelites to remind the readers of the Bible just that, that God's ways, God's plans are bigger than any particular notion that we might have. You know, that he is able, and Jesus himself kind of alludes to the same thing, right? That he can raise up these stones as witnesses if he needs to. Like, it's it's he doesn't need us to, to do the things he wants to accomplish. Uh, he can recruit the winds and the waves and the whales uh, to, to do those things as well. Amos is a very different sort of book. So Jonah is prose. It's a short story, but Amos is poetry. It's prophetic poetry uh, and aimed towards the northern kingdom and seems mostly towards the elites, kind of the, the you know, the top of the, the upper crust of the northern kingdom and just their mistreatment of the poor and their idolatry. And those two things are, are yoked together. Um, Amos is a southerner. I think he's a Judean that is sent to the northern kingdom to to preach against them and proclaim uh, the Lord's word against them. And Amos begins with this kind of interesting, like, you know, he pronounces judgments against all these other kingdoms and kind of slowly works his way in towards nailing Israel, mm -hmm. nor the northern kingdom itself there at the end. So it kind of starts off and you're like, yeah, like you tell them, Amos, mm -hmm. you know, you tell the Moabites and all these other uh, kingdoms that, that God is coming for them. You know, it's like, ah, oh, but you are not exempt from judgment. Um, and so I guess, yeah, in some ways, Jonah is like, no one is exempt from Yahweh's grace, whereas Amos is no one is exempt from <laughs> Yahweh's judgment. You know, and so we kind of get this balanced, mm -hmm. this balanced uh, uh, picture here. But a lot of what we would call kind of apocalyptic imagery in Amos in terms of gigantic fires sweeping across the land and and all these different things. Yeah, I, mean, I think that, that Amos is, is a challenging read for us now especially in our kind of social setting and situation and and how much we take for granted just in terms of our quality of life and what we expect kind of the poor to do for us you know and, and how much of our products and things are are made by people in faraway places you know where our trash goes when we throw things away and and, and just how much of our life is built on uh the labor of the poor um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., his or one of his favorite verses, let justice roll on like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream that's drawn from Amos. And so Amos has been an important book in, in American history um, and in our political history for many decades. One of the things that I think is interesting here 
is that the backdrop for these prophets is the 8th century BC, which was kind of a tumultuous time. In the first half of that century, Assyria was shrinking. It was just doing badly, and politically and militarily and so on. And so other kingdoms were able to kind of expand and grow. But then we get a, a very competent king in Assyria, and he starts this period of expansion, which really causes people to struggle. And the prophets are kind of pointing toward the, the coming Assyrians as, as a weapon of God's judgment. But we know that the Assyrians had been really harsh for God's people and had done some terrible things. And so we see this very anti-Assyrian attitude in Jonah. I mean, he's racist, for lack of a better term, um, against them. And so one of the things that I think is interesting, I mean, there's so much in the book of Jonah, but the second chapter, you hit on this a few moments ago. Um, one of the, Jonah has sinned. I mean, he has gotten a word from the Lord that says, go and do this. And he is disobeying it. And yet, neither he nor Yahweh for a moment thinks that that means he's no longer part of the family, right? He's a disobedient child, but a child nonetheless. And we really see that in his prayer, is that his disobedience in this way doesn't threaten his standing with God. I just didn't know if you wanted to comment on that at all. Just we often think that that when we do wrong, then that means God sort of disobeys or we might get cast out because of it. But Jonah is able to do pretty wrong here and still be, I mean, one of God's people. He is allowing them to be taken into exile and for their kingdom to be destroyed. And that that is that is him being faithful to the covenant, even though they are not being faithful to the covenant. Right. And so. <laughs> their faithfulness to the covenant does not exclude them from the covenant because they're still kind of trapped in the agreement. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which, in that context, is bad news. You know what I mean? That's really what Amos is all about. Like, buddies, you're not getting out of this. Like, he's coming, you know, and it's not going to be good. Why do you seek the day of the Lord? You know, that's that's not going to go well for you. (laughs) And so I think, you know, as, as Christian readers... We are in, we are under a new covenant, but we're under a better covenant, you know. So I think that it's, you know, our disobedience has been visited upon Jesus, you know, the consequences or not the consequences, but the the judgment, the penalty for those things. So it's like, yeah, we as we disobey, as we rebel, that I think that God, we don't, yeah, we don't excuse ourselves from the covenant because that's just not how He operates. Once you're in, you're in. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we don't see anybody removed once they're in the covenant. Like once you're in, you're in. Different Christian traditions have made hay of that, you know, in different ways of like, how do we understand that in terms of individual people's salvation or raising children in the faith? And I, you know, I don't want to get into those debates, but just that from the narrative theology of scripture, I mean, I think, yeah, that there's no question. Now, you know, Paul says things like not all those who are in Israel are Israel, but I think that that has more to do with the point he's making in Romans is that this is a covenant based on faith, loyalty, allegiance, not some genetic marker in your blood, you know? And so, and that's his point, meaning that anyone in the world can be part of this covenant family, not just somebody who's a blood relation of Abraham. Although those people, you know, because he also makes the point that God hasn't abandoned Israel, even, Mm -hmm. even in the midst of all of this. And so, yeah, I think that, that Jonah, one of the, I think, the big takeaways that, that we should take from it, you know, and be challenged challenged by it is this, this just this idea that the covenant 
that those invitations are open to everybody who will answer, you know, that, that no one, even the Assyrians, you know, and, and, and we've, I think we said this back when we preached through Jonah, like, I mean, we're talking about Nazi level uh-huh. villains, you know, in history, <laughs> like we've, I mean, we've referenced many times the old Testament is violent because people mm-hmm. are violent and, and people back then were violent. But like, even in the, that context, the Assyrians, the Assyrians were, were a step above and everybody knew it and feared them, which is, I mean, part of why the Assyrians acted like that. You know, and so it's like, so those, it's those people that, that Jonah is being sent to. And, and we should not be too quick to, like, judge Jonah or, or you know, see ourselves as anybody but Jonah. <laughs> yeah. Because that's who, that's the reader. Like, Jonah is standing in, you know, for the, the faithful covenant member. And, uh, yeah, and, and I, I think his actions are understandable. You know, it's like, well, no, I don't want to go, you know, tell the evil empire. And God gives him a message of judgment. But in Jonah's mind, he goes, yeah, but if they repent, then Yahweh will have mercy on them. <laughs> <laughs> I love the book of Amos. Um, I just, I really... The sense I get of the the person of Amos just is someone that I think I I really like. But the he's the first narrative or not narrative the first um, prophet whose poems are recorded for us, right? So there was not an he didn't have a book of Isaiah to base his prophecy after. He is the first one whose prophecy poems are saved. So he's the first one we have that we know was for the common people in a way that the common people preserved and read and were were affected by. And I just think that's that's kind of amazing. And there're just a few things that he says that I think are are really important. The first one I want to mention is in chapter 4 verse 6 of Amos, we get a word that is kind of central to the prophet's ministry as a whole, which is the the word return we see that in Amos over and over again, but you see it through the prophets all the way through. And it's a repent word. The, the Hebrew word is shuv. And it's this idea of bad things are coming. You need to turn now. And we see that the one of the primary ministries of the prophets wasn't just to tell the future as we think about it. It wasn't just to proclaim judgment. It was to proclaim judgment for the sake of causing repentance. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a really important part of this. We could read these... And just be very discouraged by how excited Yahweh sounds like to uh, to bring harm. Yeah. But all of it is in the hope of causing repentance. And Amos even says that. Like, I sent you this and you didn't repent. And I sent you this and you didn't repent. And the that repentance piece is just core to the prophets. Well, I want to, yeah, maybe just dig into a little bit to just the what you said about that, that biblical prophecy obviously involves... Uh, foretelling the future, but that's not the whole of it. And in fact, that's not even most of it. <laughs> like a, much of biblical prophecy, you know, in terms of time has, has already transpired, <laughs> you know, like there's much that has already happened, you know, and I, I think that, but so, so I say that to say that it's value for us, I think is not primarily, oh good. Now we, we're getting hints about the future. I mean, history runs in patterns, so I mean, what has happened before, similar things will happen again. People are lamentably predictable in their failures and, <laughs> and sins. But, you know, that, that I think that they also, they they forth tell, you know, the will of God or the heart of God for his people 
you know, and so I think that we can we can glean a lot from that, you know, sense of it. Not not necessarily. Oh well, now I know how this particular war is going to play out in our day and age. I, I personally think that there's not very much. Okay, and you know, and what? Like, there, there's not a lot of help that that actually gives us. Um, but I think that the conviction and the the wisdom, you know, and the 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 prods, you know, towards righteousness are are good and, and useful, and and we should, you know, that that's I think why we we should read the prophets. Not necessarily to mine, you know, details about what the future may hold. Well, and this is related to what you just said, but one of the things that we can do is we can see our own struggles reflected in the struggles of the people of the time, right? So as Amos is going after um, God's people for their wealth and oppression of the poor and ignoring of the needs of those that are that are needy, that is an uncomfortable mirror for us to have to look yes. into. And one of the things that can happen in evangelical churches, and it sounds odd to say, is we can have an over-focus on spiritual things and an under-focus on physical things. What I mean by that is we can, if we're not careful, come to believe that the only thing Yahweh cares about about a person is the whether or not they've accepted him as right. Lord and Savior. Quote, unquote, their soul. Right. Yeah. And that that's literally the only focus. But we see in the prophets... That is certainly not the case, that Yahweh cares for, for the, the marginalized. He cares for those who are oppressed. He cares for those who are crying out for justice. I mean, we certainly worship a God who cares about justice. Well, and it's oh. not only in the Old Testament we see that. That's also played out in the New. But we have to be careful not to lose that. Well, and again, I think that, you know, we, we have bumped up against this over and over, you know, in our, our reading that... We think of the world divided, you know, mm-hmm. into nature and supernature, spiritual and, and physical, and they didn't, you know, and so it's, and I, I mean, I agree with everything you said, but just that I think that, again, and Amos, I think, does this very powerfully, just challenges this notion of like, yeah, in some, in a way, yes, God does only care about spiritual things, but the list of spiritual things is all of the things. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and you see that you see this that idolatry and mistreatment of the poor are two sides of the same disaster, you know. And, mm-hmm. and Amos is is showing that to us. And you know, I think that you can dig into the 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 uh, socioeconomic as much as we can reconstruct it. You know, the socioeconomic of the Northern Kingdom, a uh, situation of the Northern Kingdom at that time, and and to really understand. And we and we see many parallels in our own day and age of just the accumulation and centralization of wealth and political power and real estate, you know, not only in the hands of these rich elite Israelites, but even in the hands of these priests in these temples, you know, and, and that, you know, you, yeah, you just think about how does that happen? Why does that happen? Growing inequality of wealth in our own society is desperately worrisome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, history runs in patterns. People are lamentably predictable, you know. So it's just so much. It's like, oh yeah, you know, like that's happening right now, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> to us, you know, and and it's uh, scary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. Um, would you be willing to talk? So the day of the Lord is mentioned, especially in uh, just such a, a dramatic way in chapter five, in verse eighteen. I want to read this little section if I can. Um, he starts off by telling, giving instructions to people about hating evil and loving good, right? But then he says, 
Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. This is in verse 16. There will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? And then he goes on to describe just like what it's going to be. It's going to be like a man who's running from a lion and then meets a bear. Or a man who rests at home and then gets bit by a snake. You know, the... the so what, what is the day of the Lord? Why did they look forward to it? And what is he telling them is going to happen? Yeah, that's a good question. And Amos, I think, in many ways, is kind of the first major high, highlighting of this idea. Uh, I mean, I think the phrase has been used before yes. in the Bible, but, but Amos kind of uh, emphasizes it. And I will say that the Bible Project has a really great video on this exact topic on the day of the Lord, so our listeners can go watch that, and they'll do a much better job than what I'm about to do. <laughs> they know that Yahweh acts in history. You know, that is one of his distinctives, even compared to other, you know, beings. These stories about Baal or whatever else all happen in the distant past. You know, there's, there's no, there is no exodus, you know, in the Baal uh, stories or in these other gods and goddesses. They might, you know, help you in some particular situation today but like there is no there are no historical acts so acting in history is one of the distinctives of yahweh right that he doesn't just exist as this fun concept in people's minds but things actually shift in the world you know he he intervenes on behalf of his people and so this idea of the day of the lord you know i think really we see kind of begin with the exodus of like that he is acting on a day like on an actual day that exists you know on a calendar and so i think it's it's that idea thrown into the future you know that one day yahweh is going to defeat all of our enemies and bring us peace and bring us abundance and heal all our hurts and and uh which all sounds great you know and 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 is wonderful but i think the point amos is making is sure you know that's all true but also you know what comes with that is judgment Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, so I think that's the side, you know, this image of like a man goes into his house, leans his hand against the wall, and then he gets bit by a serpent, you know, that, <laughs> that, uh, and Ecclesiastes has a similar image, right? If you knock down a wall or if you fall into a hole, maybe you get bit by a snake. Anyway, just this idea of like, not, not, not of unintended consequences, but just that you won't get away with it. I think is the idea that you can't, you cannot use your theology to cover your sin to cover your bad behavior like you will be well you are being found out like it's not a secret what you're doing and then also that you ultimately will not get away get away with it just because you know you are the wealthy or the powerful or just because you belong to the covenant people like there's still a judgment uh that's 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 waiting you know i mean i think peter says a similar thing you know when he talks about the that judgment will begin with the household of God. You know, we talked about that a few weeks ago because somebody asked a question about God's wrath and judgment on the church. And it's like, yeah, we shouldn't kid ourselves. I mean, we should long for, you know, the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, but we should also not be afraid of it. But certainly I think just know that it's not all going to be like Candyland. <laughs> You know, that we won't get away with it either. Like, we will be called to explain ourselves, you know, um, before God. And and that that, I think, should, just like you were saying, it's not a threat, but it is a promise. 
<laughs> well, but it really is supposed to be a deterrent, right? That's like God sends us these these warnings to say, so stop what you're doing and pick a different path, mm-hmm. you know. And and so I think that that's what Amos is saying. It's like, yeah, let you know, the day of the Lord could be different, mm-hmm. you know, if you would take a different path and even take it seriously, you know. Like I think that there there's a way in which, you know, he's saying. If you really believed that this was going to happen, you would act differently. Like yeah. you would not be conducting yourselves in this way. And when we talk about the the role of the prophet having uh, not being primarily about predicting the future, and what he's doing is, as you just said, I mean, he's 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 promising that a exile is coming if the change is not made, and then we do see an exile happen. And it's well, it, or just that when that that. Yes, yes, but just that that Yahweh will act in history. He will, mm-hmm. but that won't always be happy, you know, for God's right. people, or it won't always be positive. Let, yeah, yeah, we can say it like that. Which, yeah, the exile is obviously looming, you know, quickly in the in the uh, the windshield, you mm-hmm. know, as they're as they're getting closer to it. What I would also, I think, just maybe want to add to that too, circling back a little bit. Oh, circling back a little bit to the foretelling, you know, uh, part of the conversation. You know, we read the. We read through the book of Deuteronomy and the last section of Deuteronomy. I mean, Moses mm-hmm. kind of lays out this diagram of like, here's what's going to happen. You know, and so in many ways, yep. you know, and I'm not saying that these prophets didn't get like a, a new revelation from God at all. But I can also I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they were actually just really good students of the Torah, you know, because <laughs> you can take what Deuteronomy says and spin that out into these sorts of prophecies of yeah. like Moses told us how this is going to go already, you know, like the foretelling has already happened and you're not listening. And so it's, it's, it's really just a renewal of old predictions, you know, that, that Moses uh, had laid out. And we can also understand why it would be difficult to listen to because Amos is prophesying at a time in Israel that was stronger than it had been since Solomon. Like Jeroboam II was not a righteous king, not a holy king, but he was a very successful military leader. Mm-hmm. And he, he brought Israel back to the same boundaries it had under the right. time of Solomon. And so is Israel's expanding and and everybody's feeling good about what's happening in the nation and, and everything. Here's this person saying every disaster is coming. Right. Don't don't get too uh, too ahead of yourselves. Well, and I think that also just brings up a good uh, you know, the Bible <laughs> Kings and Chronicles, it seems, is mostly told from a Judean perspective. You know, mm-hmm. and so it favors Judah over the northern kingdom. I mean, Judah stays more faithful and is the one that continued to exist. So that makes sense. But in many ways, it's it's actually another older brother, younger brother story. You know, that the younger mm-hmm. brother is favored because Judah was smaller, poorer, and weaker than the northern kingdom was. I mean, Samaria, the capital, was a gorgeous you know, city that, that was the envy of many of the peoples around them for many years, yeah. you know. And uh, and so, you know, why did Assyria destroy the northern kingdom? Well, they didn't destroy the southern kingdom because the angel of the Lord killed a bunch of them. But <laughs> they came for the northern kingdom first mm-hmm. because the northern kingdom was the threat, you know, and Judah, little Judah was mm-hmm. not, you know. And so I think that's just worth teasing out as well that, that uh, the northern kingdom was always bigger, better, stronger and richer than the southern kingdom when you read amos i want to read the first four verses of chapter nine real quick if i can i saw the lord standing by the altar and he said strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake bring them down on the heads of all the people those who are left i will kill by the sword 
No one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not good. And so one of the things that people worry about today, it's one of the most frequent concerns I hear from people who are um, either on the outside, very near outside of faith, or inside but really struggling, is I've done so much wrong, I don't think Yahweh can forgive me. I think he's, he's got his eye on me for harm and not for good. And what we see here is happening is, is that is the case with his people. They've, they've tipped the, the, the part of the covenant that has the threats or the curses attached to them. And because of what they've done, Yahweh is now acting actively for their harm. And I, I guess I would just love to hear you speak to, I mean, can we do that? Can we behave so badly that, that repentance is no longer going to save us, that, that Yahweh's coming for us and that's going to be, um, very bad for us. I think that we can act so badly that we actually close off our ability to repent. Yes. But I think that the creator would never uh, reject true repentance, but certainly can someone choose a path of wickedness to the point that they won't ever repent? Yes. I think that's revealed in history and, and the lesson of scripture. So mm-hmm. I think that again, the person who's worried about that, is probably not really in danger of it. It's the person who would never ever think to ask that question because they're so hardened in their rebellion that there just is no thought that they would ever do anything else. And I think that, let me put it this way. If someone will not turn from their evil, we do not want them to be in the world to come. Mm-hmm. And and I think that once we get past all our namby-pamby, like bleeding-hearted, you know, oh, but bleh, it's like, no, no. Somebody who sexually abuses children, if he won't stop, then he goes to hell. You know, if a terrorist won't stop, they go to hell. You know, like there is no option. You don't get to go to heaven and also continue in your sin. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that it's the blood of Jesus that saves us, not our own, you know, righteousness. But I think that that's... That doesn't negate what I just said, right? I mean, God, you know, of course, we, you know, get into the whole, why do some people get saved and others don't? I have no idea. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know how it works. But, you know, we, we know that, you know, and, and, and I think that we can even probably think of people who seem like they're just so hardened that they're, they're never going to turn. Um, now, uh, you know, we don't know. You know yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone alive is hopeless but i think that god and god can you know call forth life from the hardest deadest rock you know but i think that yeah just to answer your question i think that we can that danger is real i guess let me put it like that sure absolutely you can sin so much that you won't repent anymore or repentance is is beyond your ability Um, it's not beyond yahweh's willingness to forgive right beyond your ability to do yes and so i think that that's part of what what Amos is is describing here is that, you know, because he's talking about the false sanctuaries at, at Dan and Beersheba at the end of chapter 8, you know, and, and uh, Jeroboam's golden calves, you know, that's the the altar, I think, that he's standing beside these, these idol worshippers and, and that they are so 
you know, that's what we see in the Northern Kings is that they just, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and there's just no sense of repentance or that they need to do something different. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that, that that's really what Amos is pointing towards. You know, and I think in the New Testament when Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin, I mean, I think this is what he's talking about in terms of the religious leaders who are so hardened against the coming of God's kingdom that they cannot accept that Jesus is the Messiah. And not even that, actually, because plenty of people couldn't accept that Jesus was, was the Messiah, but they actually took it a step further and said that Jesus was an emissary of the devil. You know, and and so this this sinning unto, you know, whatever the, what is the opposite of repentance? Well, I, I guess mean, repentance... Pride, I suppose, you know, or, 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 you know, whatever. But just that that's, that's what I think that Jesus is also talking about, of just being so caught up in your own-ness, you know, that you cannot accept that there could be another path, you know, that's better than what you're doing now. Well, repentance is about turning away, right? right. And so we can turn away from evil and towards Yahweh, or we can turn away from Yahweh and toward evil. And you can repent so hard in the wrong direction. You're unable to, uh, you, not Yahweh, you are unable to come back from that. And so if you are listening and you are one of those people that worries that Yahweh has his eye on you for harm and not for good, um, that's not the case. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. I mean, aside from the time I had pneumonia. All right. Uh, that wasn't an invitation to brag. Why is that bragging? Because people are proud of their diseases now. Remember that time I got COVID and it got bad because I'm fat and out of shape? That makes now, me better than other people. You took it to that place. <laughs>